Hello and welcome to R3 Sense, a podcast celebrating the finest video games of the last 30 years. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I am joined once again by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. A happy Monday to you all. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. The sad sounding Lord. And we are discussing our all time top 100 video games. This week we have our number 90s. But before we do that, <laughs> you know what it is. I'm ready, because I'm losing ground here, quite seriously. It is for all in the quiz. Here we go. Question 11. What was the first commercially successful video game? Is it A, Asteroids, B, Pac-Man, C, Pong, or D, Super Mario Brothers? Good heavens. I'm going to go C. I'm going to go for B. The correct answer is C. Pong. Oh, Pong. No. Yeah. Here we go. Big Chris back in the lead. <laughs> Dow boy. Marvellous. Marvellous. There we are. 5 4 to Chris. Oh, I tried so hard and got so far. So, chaps, what have we been playing this week? Minty? I've just been chugging along with uh, Vesperia Deluxe. Ah, having I... a good time? Nice. Yeah. I'm not playing as much as I would like to, but it is a vast undertaking. So, I'm. I've just reached Torim Harbour. Excellent. Yeah, I've been trying to uncover a... Uh, boat? Well, I, I got there by boat. Ah, <laughs> half right. We're trying to uncover the uh, the plot of a corrupt magistrate. Uh, but it's not going very well because he's on the uh, he's on the Imperial Council. Ah. And he's got a mole, like, just right on the side of his nose. It's that it's that kind of physical imperfection that denotes the uh, the imperfection of his soul. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to everyone bearing, in many ways, the mark of the devil. <laughs> ugly face, ugly heart. <laughs> That's how it works. Chris, well, what have you been playing this week? Um, I have been playing a game on the Switch called Pixel Colours. Have you finished all the Picross games already on the Switch? I haven't, but I, I started playing this one because... Uh, I follow someone on Twitter called Indie Gamer Chick. You can find her at Indie Gamer Chick. And she's been doing her best over the last lots of years now, sort of promoting the cause of, of smaller independent developers. Uh, and she's started doing a, a thing called Indie Select, where she takes kind of like eShop codes or, or PlayStation Network codes or Steam codes or whatever, and basically just gives them out to anyone who asks from these smaller developers in exchange for you offering some decent feedback to the people who've made these games. Oh, fantastic. So I picked this up through that sort of promotion uh, and played it quite a lot, and it's, it's very nice. And it, it uses slightly different rules, like a, a adapted rule set, because it includes colour as well. So it's it's something a little bit different, but a little bit familiar, and it's it's been quite fun to play through. As a colourblind man, would I <laughs> be amiss with this? I think you would be okay, but I'm not sure if it does include like any sort of pattern colourblind mode as well. Uh, I would have to check. If not, I will feed that back to the developer. I hope that it does. Any game that includes a colourblind sort of friendly mode, if I need it or not, always gets a huge tick in my book. Red Dead Redemption 2 has colourblind mode in it. Does it? I had a little... I mean, I didn't need it, but I was like, oh, this is... Oh, I certainly have a play, but you can select what type of colourblindness you have, and it's adapted all of the colour palette designed specifically for that different type of colourblindness. It's really quite incredible. Really great. Mm. Oh. I suppose that's what happens when you develop a game with literally billions of, of pounds behind <laughs> it. <laughs> you, can, you can afford to have a whole team working on accessibility options. Indeed. Uh, as for myself, I have picked up a game again that I'd sort of 
uh, drifted off from uh, the past. I mentioned before when you were talking about desert golfing that I didn't have a mobile game in my top 100, but this would be the game that was closest to getting in there. It's a game called The Legend of Solgard. On the surface, it's a match three game. It's made by the guy that made Candy Crush, developer King. Mm. And I saw this advertised and I thought, right, okay, I know exactly what this is going to be. It's going to be a real sort of cash and grab sort of thing that's going to sort of rope people in. I mean, it was being advertised on things I was playing all the time. And I thought, you know what, I'll download it. I'll give it a go because it looked really nice. It looked really satisfying. Uh, And the way that it works is it's essentially a turn-based strategy game. And you have a selection of different creatures that you use in your offence. And... You move them around on your side uh, to make either, you know, sort of lines of three or squares of four to then attack with them. And in sort of combining them in different ways, you can build walls and things have got special powers. All the creatures have got different uh, powers and you try and sort of beat, you know, whatever's on the other side. For a game that is that looks quite simple in terms of like the Candy Crush setup, it is phenomenally deep in terms of strategy. Yeah. There are, I mean, thousands upon thousands of combinations uh, just with among sort of having 50 or odd creatures to sort of choose from and sort of combining them in different ways uh, to to sort of serve different functions against some of the different levels and some of the sort of the level specific sort of obstacles that come up. But there's also so many other modes. There's like a boss rush mode and there's hero mode and sort of community things where you can sort of battle other people and, and all of that. And, you know, I have sort of put a bit of money into it over time, but not anywhere near as much as I've done with other games, which are awful, uh, <laughs> but just make me feel like I need to get a chasm of crystals or whatever so I can oh, desperately oh, get to level 102 or whatever. <laughs> It's incredibly well balanced from that from that point of view. And I'd sort of put it on hold for a bit just because I sort of felt there's quite a level of commitment you have for the game because there is eight objectives you that refresh every day. And if you clear all of those, you get a, a big chest <laughs> of treasure. Not, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's the little thing sometimes, isn't it? Because you know my favourite comedy series is uh, the Carry On series. <laughs> Of course, of course, yeah. And so every single day, I'd, in order to get sort of the daily bonus, you would have to sort of complete a good sort of two dozen sort of battles in sort of across the different modes. And after a while, that sort of feels like a little bit of a chore. Um, and so I'd sort of, my interest in it had sort of dwindled and put it aside. And I, I picked it up the other day. I saw that it had been updated recently. And they've added a functionality in there for auto battling. So you select your team and then you can click on auto and the AI will then give the best sort of attack that it can. Contrary to that sort of taking anything away from the game, it entirely renewed my interest in the game (laughs) because it turned it from, you know, being a strategy game that I enjoyed sort of interacting with and engaging with into more of an idle game, but in a setup that I'd already really established myself in. And um, yeah, it's I've been playing playing it again and having a great time. I'd recommend it. Just out of interest, before we move on, what is the mobile game you've put the most actual money into, do you think? You don't have to say the value, but just what what has been the biggest money sink? I think it's either Heyday, (laughs) farming one. Mum was obsessed with Heyday for years. Yeah, I know. I had her as a friend on it. Yeah. And then I managed to wean myself off it. But then I got re-addicted to essentially the same thing, a game called Township. Oh, I remember Township. <laughs> yeah, you remember like me and you and Steve in the house just sat around playing Township. Yeah. And yeah. 
the trouble was, if my two housemates weren't playing it, I probably wouldn't have put more money in. But because I could buy my way to be better than them, you could literally, you could literally lord could it literally, over your housemates. Yeah, it was, which is just a horrible situation to be in. But um, an honourable mention for the most money I've put into a game must go to the awful Asterix game that there is. And I've come through a bit of a phase of, of I bought all of the Asterix books on iBooks so I could read them on my iPad. And I mean, God, don't add that up. <laughs> I was then like, oh, there must be a good Asterix game out there. And there was, and it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, sort of a combination of like a sort of battle game and a sort of city building sort of game. And I knew... I, I knew my vulnerability. I knew my weakness as far as sort of pay-to-win games go. And I just sank about 80 quid into it in the space of about two hours and then was so livid with myself, I deleted it. And it was... Because the trouble is, like, when you invest in it, then you kind of feel you need to sort of commit to it. Yeah. But I was like, I just need to cut this off right, right, right now. So I, I always proceed with caution when buying any sort of freemium game. Uh, but Legend of Soulguard... Got it under control. Hmm, that's, good. <laughs> that's good to hear. <laughs> Thank you. So, moving on to the rankings. Number 90s. So we're into the 90s. Starting this week, we have Monsieur Dow. Please, Chris, take it away. Okay. Very limited build-up today. I'm just going to jump in this one. This game, number 90 for me, is the original Halo Combat Evolved for the Xbox. Oh, how interesting. How interesting indeed. It's, there's been loads of Halo games now. I've not played all of them, in, including all the spin-offs and things. It's got to be like nine, ten iterations or something now. None of them that I have played are as good as the original. And I, I think Halo was probably the first console first-person shooter that was really, really done properly. Because for years, like first-person shooters were kind of, they were mainly home computer games, if you think kind of where Doom and Quake and all those kind of big releases came from. It was always on the PC, and then sometimes they trickle down to home consoles. Like there was ports on, like the PlayStation and the Saturn and the N sixty four and stuff around that time, but they never really felt right. Uh, like either movement was was kind of like broken in some way or changed because you didn't have the the mouse look. You know, this was before we had dual analog sticks on most consoles. It, it might be that the stages were shrunk down, so they didn't really have the same sort of sense of scale that the the originals had. And I suppose it wasn't until maybe like Goldeneye on the N sixty four because that was like a bespoke console game gamers sort of started to think oh well actually first person games can work on a console we just have to kind of approach it slightly differently maybe and there was like a big race it felt around that time like the transition sort of the 64-bit time into kind of the ps2 era where suddenly developers were trying a little bit more to, to make something of it and i think the the original time splitters on the playstation 2 almost gets it right but it's focused so much on kind of multiplayer and couch multiplayer, which is great if you have loads of friends to play with, but not that great for a solo gamer like me who doesn't generally play games in that way. And I remember Halo being the first one that when I played, it felt like it made sense with a controller in your hand. It still had the, the local sort of deathmatch multiplayer stuff, but also had a big cinematic single player adventure that felt really immersive, was compelling. It, it made sense like sitting in front of a TV as opposed to being like cramped on a computer it was just a different sort of experience and nothing felt like it had been shoehorned in to fit a different platform it was just it had been made for that machine my first experience with it i actually played halo like a little bit on like a friend's xbox but i didn't get an original xbox for years um so <laughs> despite me saying this is all about kind of games working for console i first played halo on the pc <laughs> and then it was years later i played through it all again uh, on the original xbox when i was at university and then i played it again kind of a few years back when i had an xbox one briefly on on kind of the master chief collection which collects together i think halo one to four the original game still holds up best out of any of them 
Yeah. Uh, and I think a huge part of it is Bungie, as, as developers, really know how to make guns feel right. And they, they went through, obviously, the Halo series until they kind of, they're not in charge of development anymore. They've, they've gone on to do Destiny. I tried Destiny for a bit. And again, because it's it's an online thing, it's kind of refreshing quests. It's all that kind of evolving community and time-limited stuff that just stresses me out. All that kind of thing just makes me really anxious that I'm missing out on content of a game. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, so I, I switched off pretty early, but the guns still felt as good as they did in Halo. So the, the idea of kind of having that, that combat loop and having guns which worked was still there that they obviously still know how to do and so much of it is it's, it has like a real it's a limiting system in terms of what you might be used to from again coming from something like doom where you've got all your weapons across like hotkeys on the keyboard you can swap between whatever you've got access to where halo was one of the earliest games that said okay you, you choose two you can hold two guns and you can swap them out on the fly but you need to actually plan for what what is up coming up in, in front of you it's also one of the first games to introduce the, the regenerating shield, for better or worse, that is now kind of commonplace in pretty much all console games. And it do, it kind of added a lot to do with using grenades in a kind of a sensible way because they were so plentiful around the map. You'd collect them from other enemies, you'd collect them from little, you know, ammo outposts that you had to really think about what you were doing because you had this loop, like I said, this halo of, of uh, the way you'd approach any sort of situation where you'd shoot, you'd retreat, you'd use sort of grenades intelligently to try and actually ward off the enemies because they were using AI in kind of really interesting way as well for that era that they would try yeah. and flank you as the player. They'd try and interact with each other. It wasn't just like a black and white experience that you knew what was going to happen because they were on like a set path. You, you had to really think about the whole palette of kind of attack and defense you had for you as a character and and what you were going to do with that it's definitely not a perfect game thinking back like the times i've played through it completely as with any kind of game that's 15 or so hours or something like that there's always little dips in interest there's always areas that have like spotty checkpoints or like woolly signposting or, or you know difficulty spikes here and there that kind of make it less fun than it should be but i think it's one of those games that for that sort of package like the the first person story-based shooter or like action adventure game it's it's up there for me as as one of the closest developers have come to a real perfect package and yeah I, it's one of the only reasons i would consider going and buying an xbox one again it's a great game i've never had an xbox console of, of, of any of any kind but I, I was always of the the kind of the belief that first person shooters should be played with a mouse and keyboard yeah I, I, yeah, I'm fully sort of aware that Halo influenced modern first-person shooter games yeah. um, because you look at the games that have come after that. You mentioned the first time splitters because the second time splitters was the first time I sort of played a first-person game on a console and thought, okay, yes, like this feel. I think I could get my head around <laughs> around yeah. how this works. Uh, and then, of course, like Call of Duty came along, uh, sort of a couple years later, and then well, the rest of it obviously is is history. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm still not sure whether or not I've I've ever come across two first person games on a console, the twin stick. Mm. I can't think of one that I would say I was hundred percent sort of comfortable playing. Uh, yeah, for well, it wasn't that many. Um, really before the Wii U on Nintendo because mm. none of them had more than one stick apart from that sort of little nipple on the GameCube. <laughs> but then the most notable first-person title, Metroid Prime, yeah. was a single-stick setup, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was, yeah. Because I was wondering if if rumour is to believe that Metroid Prime Trilogy is going to be coming to the Switch fairly soon, mm. actually whether or not I would be able to play it as a single-stick setup. Uh, yeah. Again, I don't know if if because my brain is sort of more programmed to, to for the dual stick sort of setup. I, um, I think surely if it gets a port 
uh, they'll probably include the same sort of semi-pointer controls that the Wii version had, uh, using like the, the sort of gyroscope on the on the Joy-Con. But I reckon they'll they'll also just patch in dual stick controls. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that, Chris. Halo, a game-changing game, a, a changing game game. What? <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Next, we have Minty Booth. Minty, could you please tell us about your 90th favourite video game of all time? Yes, I can. It's another game I've not completed or even uh, played. In- <laughs> <laughs> I just like the idea of it. Yeah, I thought, I saw it on the shelf and I thought, that's a plucky box. Mm. I'll, I'll honour that in a way that is available to me in a good few years. Yeah. No, I've, uh, I have played it. You'll be pleased to know. I am pleased to know. Yeah. Not for about 15 or 20 years. This game is Star Wars on the NES, Game Boy, Master System, and the Sega Game Gear. Wow. <laughs> this yeah. is... I played wow. it on the NES. I've got memories of this. I really loved this game growing up. I was really, really awful at it. <laughs> <laughs> but I did, you know, keep coming back to it and making minuscule progress each time because it was one of i think three games that i owned on the nes so i kept going back to it getting a little bit further each time until i uh, lost it either in a house move or a car boot sale oh yeah the overworld was just sort of speeding around tatooine in your land speeder it was it was quite basic because it was the nes but it was nice it had a good sense of scale yeah there was some familiar landmarks and locations where you could be like oh i recognize that from uh, from the film or whatever in all of its lovely eight bits glory or whatever mm. it was on the nes mm. the thing that stood out to most for me was uh going back to the uh first person done well thing was uh the first person ship segments oh yeah they were they were great for what they had to work with there was one bit where you had to fly through the asteroid fields in the in the falcon that was as far as i got actually yeah i remember completing that and then dying on the death star ah i mean the star wars saga would have been very different if that had been the case in the films Oh, yeah, I'd be an awful protagonist. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, after watching speedruns recently, I've seen that they've also got the Death Star trench run as well, which, oh, which, looks, which yes. looks very fun. And that's sort of the, uh, the big climax of the game. I'll, I'll talk about where I managed to actually get up to, which was mostly just nobbing around Tatooine, looking for people. Looking for trouble, um, shooting yeah. first. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Before you could even get into the Falcon, you had to find uh, little, all the different characters like Han Solo and R2-D2, and they all had their own sort of individual traits or things that you could make them do. Like Han was another playable character. Mm-hmm. Yeah how they get a better gun. Obi-Wan would, if you selected him in the menu, he'd say, the force is very powerful, and then heal your party. And I think 3PO would say things like, perhaps the real Star Wars is this journey we're all going on, and the friendships we've made along the way. Uh, yeah, I really liked the the feel of the caves on Tatooine. Um, they had a nice creepy feel to him, and the music in them was good. I love Star Wars, and while this wasn't the game that made me love it, what I did play was a strong enough action platform with some really nice set pieces. If I had the time, I would emulate it in a heartbeat. Ah, lovely. I mean, Star Wars has obviously got a huge sort of video gaming history. Legacy. An eclectic and... range almost as big as the EU. The extended universe. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This this game, I, I had the Game Boy version of this that I bought from, I think, like Woolworths for really cheap at some stage when I was a kid. With a bag of pick and mix. <laughs> More than oh, likely. Yeah. And a cassette tape single of uh, Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve. 
Oh, we all went there. <laughs> we, we all, all did. There. We all did. But yeah, I'd never seen the Star Wars trilogy at that point. So I, I was playing the game without any wider sort of narrative context. Didn't know who any of the characters are. Don't know where I am. Don't know what I'm doing. Nothing is signposted particularly well from memory. And I just remember like being in the, in the, in the land speeder, driving about, getting to a cave, dying doing it again dying and just thinking it's like so in this film does he just go spelunking is that is that all Star Wars is <laughs> and yeah, I, ne- I never made any progress but it's nice to hear that someone did Jonathan what is your 90th best video game in your opinion of all time I'm particularly excited about this game it's a, it's a real favourite of mine it's a real childhood classic of mine it got me into a whole load of uh, similar sort of games, and I really do think it's a game-changing game. I'll come on to why it's at number 90 and not higher, and I think Chris might be surprised that this is so low. Oh, okay. This is Thief the Dark Project. Oh, that is low. Oh. So Thief the Dark Project was a PC first-person stealth game that came out in the late 90s during that little era that we've spoken about quite often where sort of first-person games were coming out on the on the PC that were really sort of, you know, changing the industry. And my enduring memory of Thief is actually not playing the game, but playing the demo that we got on the front of a magazine. And it had the first level, Lord Bafford's Manor. And you sort of started in the street and you had to go and rob lord bafford's manor and get a particular piece of treasure to win and i could not believe that a game that looked that good was running on my pc because i mean my pc could run basic sort of stuff but i really couldn't believe it and and thief really had something in its back pocket that um sort of other sort of modern games didn't which was the fact that everything was in shadow because <laughs> mm. if you whack the gamma up on a, on on that it looked awful yeah um <laughs> it's really really bad but because everything was so dark and obviously it was programmed amazingly and the lighting design was phenomenal because it was all part of how you played the game and no other game had done stealth like that totally changed how everything sort of was done after that and it made me particularly interested in that sort of way of playing not just sort of the the thief games that followed but splinter cell and deus ex as we mentioned and various other sort of stealth games as well i played this demo just over and 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 that was enough for me you know, this was in the days when we were kids and we had such small amounts of money that you could only really afford to have maybe one game every couple of months. For me, in my memory, it was basically I could maybe get one game in the year and then I'd get a game for my birthday, maybe. And for whatever reason, I decided not to get Thief with the money that I had and got something else because the, the demo was enough for me. I loved it. We just played, me and my brother just played it over and over again. We liked to see how fast we could do it. We loved just listening to the brilliant kind of voice acting that was in there, not just of <laughs> Garrett the Thief, uh, which was just fantastic, but also some of the hilarious guards hiding in the shadows and listening to what they would say, just talking to themselves. And it was just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. The, uh, the guard speech is the stuff that I remember more than anything else from that game. It's so funny. The amount of sort of detail that's gone into that and the amount of sort of craft that's gone into not just these people and their personalities but the stuff they're talking about in terms of vernacular that obviously mm. exists in this world yeah. like calling each other taffers <laughs> which is not a thing <laughs> it's, it's not, not a thing. thing is it not any sort i really of, don't think so i don't know I, th- I think what's really unique as well about that like we're talking about this kind of depth of the audio design and world building it probably came from a place because they knew the whole purpose of the game is to be in the shadows hiding away 
you're, you know, the, the whole game is then set at this pace where you're you're going slower, you're taking your time over stuff, yeah. you're planning things out. And I think it's just a unique way to design because I can't imagine they wrote all this dialogue and then built everything around that. No, exactly. It's obviously they would have played the game enough to think, okay, well, I'm going to be in that corridor for... This is a bit bad. Yeah, I'm going to be there for a long <laughs> mm-hmm. time. And I, I think that's it's just a really interesting approach as well to, to think about it in terms of design. I've never thought of it from that perspective, but I think, mm. yeah, you're absolutely right. And that is, that's, that's wonderful. So this demo actually saw me all the way up until I got a demo for the second Thief game. And that blew me away in a way that was very profound. And mm. then when I had the money, I got the second Thief game. And who knows, maybe we'll hear more about that <laughs> next year. Um, <laughs> but then eventually there was a, a gold edition of Thief that came out with some extra levels. And then it sort of went down into the sort of the budget range. And I finally ended up getting a copy of it i got to play the first level again although you started in a different point so my strategy was out the window (laughs) quite literally you had to jump out of the window uh, with a rope arrow down the side of the castle round the back into the sewers up into the basement and bob's your taffer and then once i got onto the second level i realized that this wasn't actually the game that i thought it was because I thought that all the levels were going to be like the first level. It was going to be sort of this sort of medieval set, castles, guards and looting and creeping about in the shadows. But the second level, then I realised, oh, hang on a minute, this is actually a horror game. (laughs) And there was a whole other tangent that the game went on. And like the first thing you see is like a zombie that gets up and it's like, well, okay. It wasn't the same as tricking a human, even though they were programmed the same, you know, to actually play, it felt very different trying to outsmart a human than it would be to outsmart a zombie because it, it, it just did. It just felt felt different. You thought about it in different ways. I sort of found that this thread became more and more pronounced the further you went through the game. And there were levels that were where you went to like the Haunted Cathedral. And then later on in the game, there was the return to the Haunted Cathedral, which it was sort of fabled about being absolutely terrifying and really, really hard. It sort of pulled on the threads of the pagan side of that world, which was in the second Thief game, but in a much less prominent, in a way that I felt really complemented the tone of the rest of it, as opposed to actually being the dominant tone. And so because of that, there are maybe only, I think maybe three levels out of 12 that I really kind of enjoyed playing in Thief, which were the ones that actually were a bit more, you know, normal instead of paranormal there was one level that was absolutely superb though which was sort of one of the more freaky levels and it was a level i believe called the sword and it centered around you having to steal a sword from the middle of this mansion that was built by this wizard i assume and the mansion was basically like condensed alice in wonderland and it was weird as hell you would sort of go through a door and all of a sudden you'd find yourself in a place that was you were tiny and you had to sort of use a rope arrow to climb up onto a chair or you'd sort of be going down a corridor and it's slightly it would start to turn and you'd be on the wall and then you'd be on the ceiling and and everything was sort of higgledy-piggledy or you'd like burst through a door and actually it was a portal and you were sort of suspended in the middle of space and uh, and that was really, really good fun. Uh, and I think because it because it sort of made a character of the location as opposed to just sort of having a normal location with weird stuff in. But yeah, I mean, I still enjoyed playing the game, but it kind of it lost something for me. It lost it lost what, the magic of what that first level had. Fortunately, they 
address some of that stuff in the series going forward and in later sort of installments in the series that, uh, like I said, perhaps we'll come on to in uh, in the Junus, of course. But for its faults, for its positives, Thief the Dark Project, number 90 on my list. Very nice. Thief as a game, and, and Thief 2, I, I can't separate the memory of that from you. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled about that. Right, because because you, you and Alex were... were yeah, you and Alex were so obsessed with with Thief for quite a long period of time yeah. that thinking about it now, like I owned, I, I think I bought one of them, either either Thief Two or maybe the Dark Project again when it was like you know in a budget box. Never made massive amounts of progress on myself, but, but would enjoy playing it. But yeah, I, I can't isolate any memories I have of the game outside of the memories of watching you play it. Yeah. So I, I think it's weird. There'll probably be other ones up this list as well as we get higher, where it's like there's an indelible connection between like yeah. growing up and playing the same stuff or, or seeing each other play certain things. Absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, like you said, there will, there will certainly be other games that, you know, I remember playing on our Game Boys in, in school, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, uh, yeah. and, and certainly with the Thief games, probably for most of my school life, anybody who came over to my house <laughs> would watch me play Thief <laughs> at some point. <laughs> we used to do that at 118, well, with a Thief game, mostly because you didn't like doing the scary levels on your own. That or is... Just come in and be like... Oh. Absolutely correct. Yeah, because I just got my gaming PC, mm. and the first thing I have got on that was the latest Thief game, for lack of a better term, was Thief 4. Yeah. That was great, but yeah, I used to... Minty would come in and watch me Watch me play that, and I say, watch me play that. Hold my hand whilst I do the scary bits. <laughs> Stroke your back. Yeah, exactly. Just bring me a, a cold compress. <laughs> Mop my brow. Soothe your tremors. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny that obviously you were talking about a multiplayer sort of first-person game, whereas this single-player game turned out to be quite the multiplayer experience. <laughs> yeah, very nice. So there we have it for another week, another three games, as only fact can confirm. We had... Halo Combat Evolved. We had Star Wars. And we had Thief the Dark Project. If you've enjoyed this episode, or indeed any of the other episodes, please do leave us a review, five stars preferably. Let us know what you thought, share it with your friends. You can now find us on Facebook. If you search for Our Three Cents, you'll find our Facebook page, or you can get in touch with us individually. You can find me on Twitter, at Jonathan Dunn. You can find me at Chaz underscore Hodges uh, I'm on Twitter Minty Booth huge thanks as always to the Double Down Podcast Network for hosting us and join us again next week for our number 89s uh, if this episode was a tower defence this would have been a boss <laughs> <laughs>